From the McKinsey Global Institute, it's Forward Thinking with Michael Chewy and Janet Bush. Janet, have you tried using ChatGPT? I haven't, actually. I was really nervous about it. But then you persuaded me to sign up just before we had this conversation. And I I was absolutely gobsmacked. Uh, That's an English word for amazed. So I'm fascinated to hear more about it. Well, as you know, we'll actually be publishing research about the economic potential of generative artificial intelligence in June, including its impact on the labor force. But today's guest has also been struck by the enormous potential of generative AI in business. And not only is he thinking about it and tweeting about it, he's been experimenting with these ideas too. And as a business professor teaching entrepreneurship, he actually requires his students to use generative AI as they develop business plans in his courses. Well, I like that because it means that if I write using ChatGPT, I won't be cheating. I'm, I'm fascinated to hear what he has to say. Ethan Mollick is an associate professor at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Ethan, welcome to the podcast. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Great. Well, let's start with your background. You know, where'd you grow up? What did you study? How'd you end up doing what you're doing today? So I may speak like an East Coaster, but I'm born and raised in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, So, which surprised everybody. But I, I have a love for cheese curds to prove it. And then did undergraduate at Harvard, started a company with a college roommate after my mandatory stint in management consulting. We invented the paywall, which I still kind of feel bad about. And then decided we, since we, I didn't know anything I was doing, we'd make it up as I went along. I'd get an MBA to learn how to do it right. Went to MIT to get an MBA and then stayed there for a PhD when I realized nobody knew what they were doing about startups. And during that time, I also started working at the Media Lab with some of the folks there who were interested in AI. Also been working on games for a while, went to Wharton afterwards, been teaching there ever since launching internal Wharton startups and researching individuals' performance and how to do better teaching, basically. What's up with the paywall? What what, what did you invent there? So my college roommate, who was our, our the technical genius, actually developed the first paywall, the first the the charge for access to so the New York Times, Wall Street Journal for a while. That was what they used was our makeshift software, and I was a you know twenty two year old who was going to like large scale publishers and trying to tell them that they should go on the internet. I didn't know better that that was probably a bad idea. So at the time we got everyone online, so that was good. But we went through the whole process. We got acquired, and you know I've I've been at the other side of that process. All right. We'll blame you from now on. That's great. Well, you recently told me that you're betting your entire career on generative AI. So just for our listeners, what is generative AI? I feel like of the two things, the betting the career feels much more ominous, but I'll talk about the generative (laughs) AI piece first. So generative AI is... The category that we're assigning to the kind of artificial intelligence you see with ChatGPT or MidJourney or Dolly, and it's kind of ill-defined, but you can sort of think all AI is doing the same thing, which is trying to predict the future based on past data. That used to be about predicting how many widgets we're going to sell or where should our UPS trucks be. Generative AI started to become about predicting what the next word in a sentence should be, so I can write a paragraph for you, what an image should look like based on a prompt. So it's about the creative and productive use of AI for generating words and images, essentially. And what makes this different than other technology trends? I mean, you've been in technology for a while, even before you were an academic. Yeah, I mean, I sat out all of NFTs and uh, Web3, which feels good in retrospect, although hopefully none of your listeners kill me for that. I mean, I think what makes this trend very, very different is that it's already here. 
So we're used to trends being sort of in five years, the world will be different. In five years, we'll all be, you know, doing all our financial transactions with the blockchain. In five years, we'll all be talking in VR. So there's like a couple of brave companies experimenting with it, but the technology is not really real yet, but maybe it gets there. AI is here now. So we don't need to be worried about, you know, a future AI. I mean, we can worry about that to see change happening today. So the product that's available in 169 countries right now, which is GPT-4 in the form of Bing, is the most advanced AI publicly available on the planet. It's available to billions of people. It literally can write code for you. It can literally do reports for you. It can pass the bar exam. It can pass the neurosurgery residency exam. We don't need future advancement for that to happen. So it's impossible to imagine there's not going to be a change as a result of that technology being widely available. So let's talk about some of those things that it can do. Again, you're a legacy blue check Twitter guy. You tweet often about things that you have discovered that it can do. That just, you know, what what are some of the provocative things that you've discovered this technology can do today? So among the many things that it can do that's provocative, I mean, I think a lot of people know it can write code, but the new versions can actually write and execute code of these things. So you can ask it for something really strange. I asked it for something to show me something numinous, which is a, you know, gold-plated SAT word about the, that talks about something otherworldly, touching higher powers, angelic. And it modeled for me the Mandelbrot set saying fractals have this numinous pattern. I said, show me something eldritch, which if anyone listens to, uh, or reads any horror novels, knows it's sort of associated with Cthulhu and H.P. Lovecraft. So it generated spontaneously for me a H.P. Lovecraft text generator that used the first bits of H.P. Lovecraft's story to create a Markov chain that would create ominous sounding text. Like, it's making intuitive leaps in these kind of discussions that you wouldn't expect, as well as creating the code and executing it. I asked it to give me a science fair project that would win a high school science fair, and it wrote and executed code to show me how machine learning worked and then wrote out all the diagrams and everything else. Like, it does a lot of sort of human thinking as part of the process. So this is not only, you know, please, you know, change this poem into this something that Shakespeare would write or something like that. This is, please write me a piece of code based on this, you know, some term that is obscure. And so it not only understands, quote unquote, the term, but then writes code for it as well and executes it. Well, it understands the human viewpoint that might make a difference here, right? And again, understanding and everything else, people can't see me, right, because it's a podcast, but I'm doing air quotes, right? So anytime I use a human-like word to describe AI, assume there's air quotes around it. But it's much easier to talk about AI as if it was doing human things. But it's important to recognize that it isn't in the way that we are. But yes, it's doing the kinds of stuff that we would not expect software to do, that we would expect a simple word completion tool, which is ultimately what LLMs do, large language models like JavaTPD do, to do these things. So whether or not that is illusion or unexplained behavior or that it's found the deep patterns of human language, the way that the Wolfram thinks, I, I can't tell you which of those things it is, but it's doing more than we kind of would expect it to in those fronts. And so why does this matter, at least, you know, economically or from a corporate standpoint? You know, how, why should people be caring about this other than they're worried about their kids' homework or that sort of thing? There's a ton of reasons. I mean, so the first thing is this is a useful tool, right? So I gave myself a challenge the other day where I said, how much marketing could I do in 30 minutes? So I, I launch products all the time. I run something at Warton called Warton Interactive, which produces educational games. And I was like, here's our new product, look it up, and then let's go and market as much as we can. In 30 minutes, the AI, with just a little bit of prompting for me, came up with a really good marketing strategy, a full email marketing campaign, which was excellent, by the way, and I've run a bunch of these kind of things in the past, wrote a website, 
spec, created the website along with CSS files, everything else you would need, created the images needed for the website, created the script for a video, and actually created a fake video with actual the human sounding voices and fake AI actors in it. And created a full social media campaign, right? 30 minutes. I know from experience that this would be a team of people working for a week, right? And that is the same everywhere. If we look at where AI has the biggest impact, it's exactly those kind of things that are the things that we pay humans the most to do, that require the most education to do, the most creative to do. And it frees people up from some of those tasks for better or for worse. So that's one reason to care is that it actually does real stuff that we care about in the business world. And the second reason to care is that a lot of people have access to it. Companies don't have any particular advantage here over individuals. In fact, this doesn't work very well as enterprise software. It works really well as a tool that I can delegate to, almost an assistant that I can have that I can delegate tasks to that I don't want to do, that it will handle for me. So that has a big economic impact. And then third, let's just talk numbers, right? We're seeing in early controlled experiments anywhere between 30% and 80% performance improvements for individual tasks, ranging from coding to writing marketing and business materials. 30 to 80%. I mean, to give you some context, steam power, when it was added to a factory in the early 1800s, increased performance by 18 to 22%. Like, this is numbers we've never seen before. Tell us more about what we mean by a 30 to 80% increase in performance. So let's just take one example of what a 30 to 50% performance improvement looks like, because there's actually a lot of dimensions to it. So there's a really great study on MIT, early experiment using ChatGPT 3.5, which is the slightly older version of Chat. And what they did was they gave realistic business writing tasks to people with business backgrounds and then had their results judged in various ways. And what they found was not only did it decrease the amount of time it took people to do work by 30% plus, right? So they would have chat do a lot of the writing for them. But the quality of the end product was actually judged higher than when humans created it. And the humans who did it liked their job better because they outsourced the annoying stuff. So we talk about performance improvements, we're talking about better outcomes, faster speed, and potentially even a better job. Wow, that's quite remarkable. We've also you know, seen this increase in the, the productivity of software developers too. Some of my colleagues are actually doing some experiments with, with our, our groups as well. And it's really interesting because in some cases, it's the best engineers who get the most improvement from the use of these tools. I don't know if you, you've heard of or seen similar types of effects. Yeah, we, it is very scattershot right now. That is one of the giant questions. Who benefits, right? So some of the work shows that the worst performers benefit the most. Some show top performers. And we don't understand yet enough about who benefits. And that's going to be a big deal in the future. So speaking of huge benefits, you know, as, as you made the point about, you know, some of the most highly educated and highly compensated people and roles are the ones where these technologies can actually increase productivity. What what does this mean for the labor force? What does it mean for jobs? I mean, at MGI, we've been doing a lot of research on the potential impacts of automation. We have different scenarios that we've modeled out over time. But what 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 are your reflections or analysis as you start to think about what this might mean for the labor force? So first off, let's just be clear that nobody knows anything, right? So I, I want to put that caveat. We don't, right? We have comforting models of the past, which is short-term disruption followed by you know long-term performance. But we've never had an automation threat broadly based on the highest paid white collar workers, right? So we don't know what that means, right? And we don't know how that'll be exploited, right? We don't know what situation that is. And that's already taking just the idea that the technology stays static is where it is today, right? So there's a lot of assumptions in place. But the short term, the hopeful version is we outsource tasks, not jobs. So the really annoying parts of your job that you don't want to do, 
right? That those are things that, you know, get outsourced to AI. Maybe you're doing it yourself and you focus on the more interesting, creative human parts of your job. The more threatening version is it turns out that a lot of our jobs are basically spent managing other humans in ways that AI might do better, right? So you're producing a report that is helping your higher-ups understand what your people who are working under you are doing, and that's what a lot of your job is, is that permanent or not becomes a big question. I think a lot of this is we don't even know how companies are weighing in on this yet. I mean, I do think disturbingly of, I was on the stage recently with the head of a company and it's public because he talked about it on stage, Turnitin, the CEO of Turnitin. And he's been playing with GPT-4 longer than a lot of us. His business is booming. But he said on stage that he thinks he could, you know, get rid of 70% or 80% of his engineers and marketers within 18 months and replace something with high school students. Thanks to ChatGPT. So I don't know if if I'd go that far, but I do think the fact that some people are thinking about it should make us a little bit nervous. What should people do, given that there should you know there's some worry here? Well, I think worry and excitement go together. Part of the reason why there's a threat from this is because it actually makes you much more productive, right? And productivity is keys to everything. The more work you get done, the more presumably you can get paid. And obviously, the more work we do as a society, the higher productivity. That's the whole reason why our standards of living increase. So there's a good side to this kind. You had mentioned that this stuff doesn't work very well as enterprise software. But we also know basically every enterprise software company is adding generative AI as a feature. So whether or not it's an email system or a customer you know, relationship management system, they're adding this as a feature. And so you know, what does this mean as, as, as you think about enterprise software and how this technology might be adopted in actual companies? So I think it's important to recognize how companies are using AI with software versus what AI is good at, right? So what they're not using AI for is processing data, which is actually quite good at writing the code, you know, or at least that's not what they're releasing is stuff that writes code. It's not deep into their APIs. What it's doing is sort of a slap on the surface kind of thing, which is like, okay, you could, there's a chat bot that will help you do unstructured tasks on top of this, right? Almost everybody's got chatbots for unstructured tasks. You could talk to a chatbot in Slack and ask it to write an essay for you. You could talk to a chatbot in, you know, uh, name whatever software you want, right? And there's obviously a little bit more work on this and sort of customer service. But the thing is, is that these systems don't play well with others because they don't actually work like software, right? Software, we want to be reliable. We want to have it to produce the same results every time. And having run software organizations, I know that's sometimes a, a fantasy, but it, but that's what we want. This is not reliable. Sometimes it'll refuse to do things. Sometimes it'll do different things. If you turn down the temperature enough, change the randomness level so it starts being more predictable, the results become much less interesting. It's a, it's a trap. Now, we'll get better at it. But for right now, you know, I've been using all the API versions of, uh, of the plugins that are available for chat. GPT, which I have early access to, and it sometimes forgets it could use them. It gets confused by them. It's, you know, it sometimes makes stuff up. That will get better, but it doesn't work like software does, right? And so it changes the paradigm of what software is, because if we expect it to be repeatable, it's not explainable. We expect software to be explainable. We expect software to come with a manual so you know the number of commands that are available to you and what they do. The commands are completely random, and they do different things every time, depending on what's in its memory and what happened in the past, what its random seed is. Like That's not how traditional software works. And when people think about this like software, they lose sight of what makes this so important and interesting. So it certainly sounds interesting and important, but some of the words that you use there are maybe scary if you're trying to apply this stuff in business. So I'd love for you to talk more about the fact that 
as you said, these systems aren't necessarily reliable. You know, people talk about hallucinations when, you know, it's when you ask, you know, for facts in the sense that things, it, it, it sometimes will hallucinate not only facts, but actually the, the supporting documents that which supposedly support those facts. Or you also talked about challenges around explainability. Why did it produce what it produced? If you have a system that's not reliable and not explainable, why use it in business? Because people are already not explainable and not reliable. And the analogy should be to think about people, to think about interns and not thinking about software. Just because it's made of software doesn't mean that that's the most useful analogy for thinking of it. Just like the fact that we're made of meat doesn't really help us think about a lot about what we do usefully, right? Now, I'm not saying AI is in any way sentient, alive, a person, but it's trained on human thought. It's built around a system that is designed to reproduce human language. It, you know, it's not surprising that the deep structure of it is human feeling, right? And we know that to even the extent that there's a great research paper that shows if you make it anxious, if you prime it with the same anxiety primes we use for humans, and you say things, tell me, a, write a hundred words about something that makes you anxious, it acts differently when it's anxious. It actually gets higher levels of bias, but also becomes more innovative and more diverse in its answers, like like humans do, right? It, there, so there's actually real, like, reasons to think of it that way. And as a result, people who are outsourcing their IT department are making a mistake or their data science department are making a mistake. It is an incredible creative tool. It is a credible, it is an incredible innovative tool. It is mediocre as something that gives you the same answer every time. Right. So say more about this anxiety thing. So you can treat these systems as if they had emotions because you can engender the kinds of responses that a person would if they're anxious, angry, sad, not just that. I mean, there's a paper out of Harvard that's really excellent that shows that you can use this for market research because if you tell it it's a particular person, it answers enough like that person that you can get pricing information from it. There is a there's a nice econ paper that shows that it reacts to classic issues of you know of cognitive biases with the kind of cognitive biases humans have. You know, like it it again, not human, not sentient, but trained in a way that pushes it to seem like it's sentient. So Thinking about it that way can be a very powerful tool. And again, I think that that's, that's the analogy a lot of people are missing. And so that can be useful in the sense that if you wanted to simulate what a person might do, but presumably that could also be a set of issues, right? If, if it's trained on data, which exhibits bias with regard to gender or race or ethnicity, and then we're asking it to perform tasks does that mean that it potentially could actually perform tasks in a way that has those biases that we see in people as well? Absolutely. I mean, it's absolutely a danger of bias. If it wasn't for its guardrails, it'd be incredibly biased. And the guardrails added different different sets of biases that antagonize other sets of people. Like, it absolutely has bias. It absolutely makes stuff up. It hallucinates. Again, though, that's why I think thinking about like a person could actually be helpful because it is biased. It's not a machine, right? And if it, that that thinks like a machine, right? We're used to like logical, like we have to take everything with a grain of salt. That doesn't mean that it can't do tremendous work, right? It means that we have to be careful about the work that it does. And it does human work with human issues. Now, I think we tend to overestimate the danger of some of these concerns, especially hallucination and making up facts, right? So there's a nice paper which gave the gave GPT and Google Bard the neuroscience, sorry, neurosurgery qualifying exam. 
and found not only did it pass with flying colors, obviously, but it, the, the hallucination rate went from 44% with Google's bar to 22% for GPT 3.5 to 2% for GPT 4. Like, I don't think the hallucination problem is unsolvable. But I think you've, you're, but I, I, you probably wouldn't let anyone working under you produce a client report without looking at it. I feel like that's the same thing about GPT-4. So that's interesting. Uh, you know, you teach at a school of management. Is the right way to think about these systems? It's almost like managing a person as much as it is programming a computer. I mean, it isn't, but it also feels that way, right? So obviously, it's a very different thing, but. If that is your starting prior, right? And, you know, we we're talking earlier about how people are creating very complicated prompts with post-postulating, pre I mean, I'm doing the same set of stuff, but you can get 80% of the way there to you getting the most out of these systems by just dealing with it like a person that you're in charge of. That's crazy. <laughs> so what are the sorts of things, what are the sorts of principles of management that actually are applicable to thinking about how to use these systems effectively? I mean, we don't know the answers to all of these things. I can tell you some of my experience on it, right? Which is, I, which is back, some of the stuff backed up with data. The two ways that are best is, like anything else, asking it to step, think step-by-step step through a problem makes better outcomes than if you don't tell it to think step-by-step, step, right? And, and then examining the steps to make sure the right steps. Same thing I would do with someone who's doing a task for the first time. Giving it examples makes it better. Right. So I do it like this because this is how we've done in the past. It will do a better job. Like those are human things. Like, again, as a teacher, it's pretty great because I'm like, I know how to teach stuff and I can teach this and it works pretty well. Right. And, you know, again, you'll see all these people with these very elaborate prompts online. You expect this to be magic, but really it's conversational. The things to remember, though, is it doesn't get mad, or at least not really mad. So you could ask you to do work 400 times where I would feel very bad sending an intern, like, no, do it again, do it again, do it again. Not a problem for the AI, right? But I still find myself thanking it and telling it, like, good job, but could you tweak this? Even though I know that doesn't matter. And I'm very curious, but it may end up mattering, right? We don't even know. It might turn out that being nice to it, I have some suspicions that being nice to it results in better outcomes, but we have no idea. I think the overall thing I would say is we don't know the full principles, but that would be my starting point is thinking about like a person. And again, that's where I think a lot of large companies are getting this wrong. They're making this an IT and strategy issue. It's kind of an HR issue. That's fascinating. So again, as you think about it as a person, the skills as a teacher, the skills as a manager, those are the skills that you're bringing as you try to make this thing work better, these systems work better. Tell me what it means to, to view this as an HR issue. It's an HR issue in a bunch of different ways. One way it's an HR issue is that this is about people and policy, right? Do you let people use these systems? Who gets to use them, right? It's a tool for people to use. It's not an IT tool. It's, it's not regulated, right? Like once people start using these systems, it's not easy to know what they're using it for, what the results are. Their work gets contaminated with the work of the AI. That's a policy decision, not a you know, not an IT decision, right? It's, it's a security threat, but that's sort of secondary to it being, what do we feel about the fact that, you know, as I've talked to a bunch of HR people who have all their reviews are now being written by AI. How do you feel about that? I know wait, plenty wait, of people- Wait, 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 say that again. What, what, what is going on there? So if you paste in someone's resume and their last performance report and say, write a good performance report for them, you get a performance report that often feels much better for the person reading it, that feels more accurate than if the HR person spends an hour on it. But does the prompt include 
some view of how the person's performance was, or you're saying it improves a draft that a person. No, no, wrote. no, no. I'm saying paste in the resume, paste in a paragraph about their the, the previous performance goals, and then write two sentences. They're doing really well in their goals. Here's what their manager said about them. Uh, write a nice performance review, include lots of details, write it from a professional HR perspective, include actionable points, and then hit enter and you'll get a good review. How do you feel about that? Bad. I, I'm intimidated by the fact that, like, look, there's a whole bunch of stuff we do that's about setting our time on fire to show that we're very considerate of people, which is good, right? If I'm asked to write a letter of recommendation for someone, I spend a lot of time on that letter of recommendation, right? Like, that's a big deal. The letter of recommendation I end up producing for them is probably worse than if I pasted their resume and pasted the job in and said, write a really good letter of recommendation for this person. And then when I got it, said, no, actually make paragraph two more glowing. Make paragraph one mention a weakness. I will get better outputs. It will probably do better for the person I'm writing a letter for. I'm not doing it, right? But that's the challenge. There's a lot of work that we do in organizations that is, a, you know, depends on there being a human in the loop to have any meaning, but it's still not that well done. What happens, if, but AI could do it better. How do we feel about that? I, I don't, I don't have, I don't know. I mean, I think we're about to discover a lot of our work has large elements like this. I'm producing, and by the way, when Microsoft releases Copilot, which basically adds AI to Office, right, you're going to send an email composed with AI with a document attached that AI wrote to a manager who's using AI to read the document and respond to you. What does that mean for work is, I think, a question that we're barely beginning to grapple with. Again, HR issue, strategy issue, not an IT issue. There's also a trust issue. I mean, I told the story to the New York Times that I sent an email to a colleague and he immediately texted me and said, is this email legit? <laughs> I said, well, what are you talking about, Rob? And he said, uh, it, I'm just not, it seems suspicious. And I said, well, maybe I should use ChatGPT to draft it. And he said, I thought you did. And so do we all start to worry that communications we're receiving from other people isn't in some ways genuine or authentic? I think if you're not already worried, you're behind. Like it doesn't, like this is done. I mean, this is not... You know, my, the the horse is out of the barn, and all the other animals are out of the barn too. Like this is this is done. I mean, you're. I mean, I can already tell you, my student writing, my writing of all my students is now excellent. I mean, I require AI in my class, so they're going to be excellent anyway. But like, the, like it's excellent. If someone's not sending you a well written email, then they didn't care enough to use AI. Every image online is suspect. Every communication is suspect. Of course, I mean, everything just broke. It's just taking people a while to realize it. What kind of world is this where we're worried about all of these things? The, the flip answer is it's the world we're in right now, and we have to reconstruct meaning in it. But, I mean, this is the actual challenge for any business person listening to this, is like, what does this world look like, right? What work is meaningful at this point and what isn't? What should you delegate to AI, obviously? But people are using, secretly using AI around you all the time. Like, I cannot emphasize how much, how much secret AI use is happening in places you don't expect. People come out to me after talks all the time, people you would expect, people in charge of writing policy, people in charge, like, and they're using AI to do stuff. Because once you start using it, you're like, why do I want to handwrite a document again? Like, it's like, feels like you're going from word processing to handwrite. Why would you do that? So, you know, I know plenty of people at companies where AI is banned who just bring their phones and do all their work on AI and then email it to themselves. Because why would you not do that? So we're already in this world, right? And what's happening is companies are like, let's position it into a policy paper. Let's wait for someone to tell us what to do. It, your, your employees are already using AI everywhere. And by the way, not just your employees, right? Again, available everywhere in the world, right? So there's a billion people, you know, countries that you know have lots of talent, but not a lot of opportunity who can now write in perfect English, write code, 
produce results? What are you doing about those? Like, I don't think the scale of this change is really noticed by most people yet. I think you mentioned, right, there's an analogy to what we used to call shadow IT spend, that the technology is so compelling that people use it even if it's not sanctioned by central IT. And as the former CIO, that resonates with me, certainly. I'm very curious, though, as you said, it's you're using it within the classroom. I, I'm, you know, I think, tell me how you, how you think about that, because if, yeah, how, how are you using it in the classroom? Uh, so I made it mandatory, right? So I teach a lot of entrepreneurship classes, some innovation classes. AI is required for all of them. You know, I have a policies on that, right? They should tell me what prompts they use at the end, write a paragraph reflecting on it, but I don't care how much is written by AI at this point. What I've done now is three different things. I've vastly expanded the amount of work people do. So, you know, I, we've had a lot of good startups come on board. And my, the 801 class I teach, which is the introductory MBA class, not just me, but a bunch of other talented teachers teach it. I think people have raised like billions of dollars from that class over time or exited for billions, right? Like it's been a very successful class at Wharton. I would like to claim all the credit for it. We can't. This is talented students. But, you know, at the end of a semester long class, what have you done? You maybe have the pitch for your idea. Maybe you've done a survey. Now I'm requiring people have working software. I don't care if you can't write software. You should have a working piece of software. I think you should have a working website. I think you should have images and I think you should have fake market reviews. I think you should have interviewed 50 fake people for, and 10 real people. I just can ask for so much more work, right? In the same amount of time. And it's amazing, right? These You now have five more people on your team, 10 more people on your team. That's the way you think about it. I'm expecting all work to be perfect. I don't want grammatical errors anymore. I don't want any issues. Why would I ever see that again? And then it also lets me do more as a teacher. Like I noticed my undergraduates stopped raising their hands in class as much. And yeah, I, I do pretty well teaching people can be high scores. Why I ask them? Because they'd rather ask the AI later a question to explain it four different ways than bother to tell the entire class they don't understand something. I, I mean, I think the shift is already here, right? Like the future is in so many places already and we just haven't recognized it yet. And this rear guard action is not going to work. Two things. How do you feel about the students rather asking a system rather than you a question? And so it's, I mean, it changes how we do lecture, right? Like, uh, first of all, lectures are always dumb, right? I do them, but they're always dumb. They were never the way you should do work. So schools can be fine. We have ways of, we can talk more about it, but there are ways of making school work that people are going to still want to have it. I'm not worried about that, in, at least in the medium term, right? We'll see what happens if, if the AGI people are right, then we'll worry about that later. But um I mean, I feel like this is showing me what we should be doing, right? It is kind of weird that someone who's confused has to tell everyone in class, hello, I'm confused by this. And then I get to explain to them a different way. Like, that's great for me. It lets me explain things multiple times, but in kind of ways, it's a weakness of me that I'm that not everyone understands it. But of course, not everyone understands it. I either teach at too high a level, some people miss it, too low a level, some people get bored. So why would we not want people to ask the AI, explain it like I'm five, explain it, I'm an MBA with a banking degree, explain it how this works. Why not? Right now, we should worry about errors. We should worry about mistakes. We should worry about hallucinations. But I also make mistakes, right? And my students mishear things I say all the time. Is this worse or better? I don't know. And that, well, one of the things I'm reflecting on, as you said, the students that are generating more work is if we go back to the labor discussion as well, while you could increase productivity, that doesn't necessarily mean you reduce the number of people of working. You might just have them produce more, given that they have become much more productive. There is no doubt in my mind, based on the data that we have so far, that there's going to be massive productivity increases for your analysts. What do you do with that time is really your question, right? Are you going to let them work less and pay them the same? Are you going to expect them to work more and do more work at the same time? Are you going to shift the kind of work they're doing so it's more high-end and creative work? Are you going to hire less of them? Like, it's, like that is the 
problem. So if I if I got to interview you, right, that's what I'd be asking you is like, what are you going to do with this stuff? Like you're, you know, what does this mean? And I think that that's the question. And there are historical precedents with other technologies, right? I mean, there was a time we paid people to calculate, you know, and then Excel came along. We still have people that are in similar roles, but again, they've sort of all up-leveled in terms of the things that they do. So I agree, but we've never seen such a broad-based general purpose technology happen so fast, aimed at such the highest income, highest educated, highest creative people. So while I absolutely think that every precedent is like, this is great, it frees us up to do more creative, more interesting work. I do worry what a lot of the creative, interesting work is also able to be done by AI. So I want a really clear indication that like, that's why I keep telling people use it, right? Figure out what your unique ability of the human is, but also make sure you can defend that because AI is getting better, not worse. So talk about how it's getting better. You know, you, you've talked and, and others have noted how much better each generation of this technology becomes. There are calls to pause the continuing development of this technology, for instance. There are questions about whether or not the technology can use itself to get better. Well, what are your reflections on how this technology evolves over time? So I, every technology development curve is an S-curve, right? It starts off slow, goes exponential, and then it starts to slow down, right, as it, as, as it maxes out. So we're on the exponential part of the curve. And the problem with the S curve is you can't, the, the steep part of the S curve, right? Yeah. And the problem with a steep part of an S curve is it's literally unpredictable to know when that, that eases off. Like we can't really tell, right? Moore's law was supposed to keep failing. And in fact, by the way, when you look at Moore's law, which predicted computer chip growth, and you know, I interviewed Gordon Moore, who just passed away about exactly this issue. Like he thought that a large part of the early stage of the curve would come from a thing called bubble memory that turned out not to work. So the curve actually went a little slower than he thought at first, but then it took off because silicon ended up being better than he thought, right? You know, standard transistor chips. We don't know what the shape of the S-curve is going to be in advance. We don't know what's going to happen as a result of, of this curve. We could plan for three scenarios, right? One is the pause happens, regulation happens, This is the and in which case this is the best AI we're ever going to use. I still think it's going to absolutely disrupt the work, right? The other option is we're on the, you know, on a regular kind of exponential, it gets a bunch better, but maybe not a hundred times better, maybe 10 times better. Well, then we've got a really disruptive tool out there that is going to really substitute for a lot of labor. What does that mean? What do we do with our time? And then we've got the, you know, sort of scary scenario that everybody talks about, but I think it probably spends too much time relative to the other two scenarios, which is what if this gets so good that it becomes artificial general intelligence, outsmarts us, and then, you know, becomes our benevolent dictator, right? And hopefully benevolent, right? And I think a lot of time we spend planning for that third eventuality, but the first two are more likely. And I think we need to be ready for this. But either way, I think it's likely that the AI you're using today is the worst AI you'll ever use. And you say we're spending too much time worrying about the super intelligence types of scenarios. I mean, I think we should worry about it, right? I just think it ends up being the exclusive worry because it sort of takes all the air out of the room right? The idea of building an alien god that sort of rules over us. And it's obviously, there's a lot of people who are super concerned about this. But, you know, and it's, we should be worried about it, right? We absolutely should be concerned about that at large-scale alignment issues. But, you know, as we've been talking about today, the world of work and education just changed dramatically over six months, right? And I see much less work going into processing what that means and what that means for, you know, it tends to really drop down to like, will jobs happen or, you know, get fired, people lose jobs or not? That's obviously important. That's even just a piece of what's happening to work and education. What, how do we find meaning when we, you know, are using AI tools? What kind of work is valuable for humans to do? What should people be investing in? What's okay to do that? How do we regulate those choices? Those are much bigger issues that we haven't paid attention to. Do you have tentative answers to any of those questions? 
So the tentative answer to those questions is, you know, again, I think that this is about models, right? So, you know, one of the things that people who are listening to this podcast, right, and especially people in organizations need to think about is like, what do you want to model? The future could be what we want it to be. We have agency here. So do you want this to be something where we keep our employees through this transition and we figure out ways for them to do even more and better work and we figure out how we use this as a competitive advantage to, you know, to expand, right, rather than like to cut costs. That's in your power. And you should do that because I think that model is the great model of the future. There'll be plenty of companies like IBM announced they're not hiring as many people because HR, because AI will do the work or the example I gave earlier of the same kind of thing. Like that's another model. So I think we need to model the behavior we want to see by testing different approaches to AI that work better. I think that it's completely plausible that we're in a world where AI expands productivity tremendously, get, takes away our worst tasks, Right. And does, you know, there was always this thought that AI would take away the, you know, and robots would take away the dirtiest, most dangerous tasks, right? Coal mining, truck driving. And then we thought was, we'll find other work for people in those spaces. I think we need to think the same way in white collar work, right? What's the dirty, dangerous equivalent job that you want to give up? How do we do that? So I, I think it's within our power to make this extremely positive. We just need to think about how to do that. So there's still a role for human agency here. There's still a role for deciding how we want to use this incredibly powerful general, general purpose technology. Absolutely. And that's where, again, I think the emphasis on will AI you know, result in the alien god that will kill us all thing leads us astray because it makes it like, do we hit like, it's this weird choice of like, do we hit the stop button or do we hit continue? And like, that's not the only choice we're facing about AI, right? I mean, it's not even the only choice about AGI issues, but leaving that aside, that's not the choice that really matters. The choice is what every executive is thinking about, right? Are they going to figure out a way and what are they doing to make that happen? I, I see so much passivity from senior executives executives when I talk to them about this, that it's kind of scares me. Like, this is the issue of the moment. This is the most important thing you should be spending time on. And they're delegating it down to a committee or waiting for some outside advisory force to tell them what to do. There are no answers forthcoming, right? Like, you're just, you've got to do stuff. What does the actively involved executive do in addition to, as you said, start playing with the technology so that they develop some intuitions about it? I think you 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 think about how do I do a crash program to figure out how this works in my work. And that may literally mean something as radical as pulling tw your 20% of your most creative workers off whatever they're doing and having them use just generative AI for a week, see how much of their job they do, and give them a million-dollar prize to whoever comes up with the best idea. I think you'll save money with that in most organizations. And I think, But I think you also have to think about in advance what happens if it turns out they can automate 80% of their job. To, to, like, what, what am I going to do if that happens, right? And so I think you need to have that philosophy tied to this too. What happened, like, am I committed to my employees or my employees that we're going to work with? And the only way I'm going to get them to show me what they're doing is for them to reveal, you know, to feel safe about it, right? Otherwise, they'll keep using AI secretly against you. So coming back full circle, you said you're betting your career on this technology. What does that mean? So I haven't really believed that other technologies, I mean, I'm a, I am a nerd who's also a technology skeptic, right? I've been, you know, since the media lab at MIT and built software companies, built game companies, like, and I've always been like, eh, I don't know about this, right? Like, always been a little bit skeptical. And this I'm not skeptical about. This I'm, I, I really worry that people are not taking this seriously enough. I worry that they put it as hype. I worry also that there seems to be a, a kind of reactance to it among a lot of smart people I know who use the system for like 10 minutes and then they're like, I don't want to use it anymore, right? And sometimes they have a reason for it. Like it gave me a wrong answer, so I never want to touch it again. Sometimes it's just like, I don't really want to deal with this right now. And I think that that's really dangerous. 
dangerous, right? So I'm betting my career on this to some degree because, I mean, look, I'm tenured, so it's a lightweight bet, so don't take this too seriously for me. But, you know, I, I got a job if I'm wrong, right? But I am betting that I'm not, right? I'm betting that this is the big thing, that this is the moment that is really going to start changing things, that this, you know, fundamentally is going to be a shift in how we work and how we interact at a level that's as big as anything we've seen in our lifetimes. The internet was a big deal, but it took a long time from its birth to have an effect. I think this will be much sooner. You think that the impact will come faster for this set of technologies? Yes, because it already is. And if it, you don't realize that, you're not looking enough because you're not using it. There, there are very few people I know who use the technology. I mean, again, selection, right? Everything else. There's very few people I, I actually know when I know who's used the technology for five or 10 hours and then said, eh, that's not that interesting. I'm not going to use it again. I, I just haven't seen that happen, right? I've only seen people convert from skeptics to believers. And then some of the believers become like cult members, which also worries me because, you know, I'm not one. But like, if you talk to scientists who are deep into GPT-4, they're like, we've, we're, we've begun, right? And you're like, oh, that's, that's not the kind of thing I want to hear from like the researchers. And I'm not there. But I do think like, you know, I, I think skepticism is, is only warranted you know, enough that for your first, you should play with it for five or 10 hours and then decide what you think. What does it mean then? What do, what are these changes that it will produce at faster paces than we think? It's a general purpose technology. There is not an industry that will be left unchanged by this, except maybe roofing, which is the industry apparently least exposed. But I have talked to a couple people in roofing and they're like, oh no, this is going to be a big deal in roofing too, because it changes how we order and how we interact with customers. And, you know, so... I would say that this is the competitive advantage you have right now is you could figure this out for your industry, right? You can figure out what it changes, right? It's going to shift the nature and meaning of work for lots of people. I think that the even more profound part that we're not grappling enough with is how we've organized work for the last 180 years since about the since the invention of the railroad and telegraph forced us to do large scale sort of you know org structures has not changed very much right maybe we had the birth of agile but that's also a highly structured process for software none of those things make much sense in an ai world agile is a stupid method for an ai world because it lowers everyone has to coordinate in very particular ways that don't work well with working with code that somehow you can make sudden leaps in right? We don't have answers to a lot of these sets of things, which is, I think, scary, but also super exciting. And I think the thing I worry about is people who are waiting for the answers are going to skip this entire generation of AI and not be ready for what's about to happen. Well, with that said, having mentioned answers, let me give you a lightning round of quick questions, quick answers, just to uh, wrap things up. All right, here we go. What do you find most exciting about the development of generative AI? Uh, the absolute uh, closing of the gap between cr creativity and outcomes. I have many, many ideas, and I used to build whole organizations to implement those. And now I'm just like, hey, can the AI build a, you know, a game that teaches me about this topic? You know, entropy for middle schoolers? Yes, it can in two seconds. That's awesome. I mean, what a, what a tool for, for increasing you know, performance. What worries you most about the development of generative AI? We don't know where it's going to end. We don't know the social implications. And th there's some very immediate things about faking news, faking information, the information environment becoming polluted, not just in social media, but inside companies that I think we really are not grappling with enough, no matter how much I sort of try and you know freak out about it with other people. I think people don't recognize what's about to happen with just the, the massive content that's coming our way. What's the most underappreciated use case of generative AI? as a creative partner, 
Like people don't like to hear that AI is creative, but it's really, it maxes out all our creativity tests, right? But it's really good at creative stuff. It's really good at being a partner to create a video game for you or run a Dungeons and Dragons campaign for you or generate 500 ideas for your startup or take your ideas and make them more interesting or give it constrained ideas. Come up with 10 ideas for how I can, you know, brush my teeth better, but they only apply to astronauts in space. It gives you that volume of ideas and creativity that is a really important key to innovation. What's the most overhyped use case? So the most overhyped use case right now is this idea of auto-GPT, the idea that we can give AI its own goals and it executes on those goals autonomously. And the answer to the, the, the real thing about that is it doesn't work very well. The AI gets caught in a loop, just like if you said to intern to execute autonomously, it's going to get confused, right? And then on top of that, like, you know, what's the value in that? It's much better for you to actually be in the loop, give it a command, see how far it goes, and then correct it rather than having it run autonomously. So I think this people are leaping too quickly onto the next AI thing. We have, you guys have not absorbed how much GPT-4 can do. Like we're, we've got five years of technology exploration before we're ready to move on to the next thing. Which industry is most underappreciating the impact of generative AI? So I think it is... Hard to know directly. I think it's consulting, to be honest, to talk to you, because I think that consultants view themselves as very unique and doing, you know, I talk to them, things that AI can't do, but it's exactly right in the crosshairs. Pulling together multiple data for analysis from the internet, writing up great analyses and doing, you know, autonomous slide generation, doing complex data work. It does all of that. And I think that we have to think about that more. Which occupation other than consultant is most underappreciating generative AI's impact? So I think there's a very obvious impact of this in marketing writing. And I think that even though marketers are sort of vaguely kind of thinking about this, I think a lot of them are still trying to kind of put it in a box and assuming it can't do things it can do. That doesn't mean there's not a great role for human marketers, but I think they really need to rethink a lot about what does it mean to do marketing writing and analysis when a tool does a lot of the low-end work that it used to do. What's your go-to question when you want to test the performance of a generative AI system? Okay, so the go-to question, I have a few of them, right? And differing levels of weirdness. So I, I ask it to write a sestina about the elements, which is a very complex poetic form, a very good test of AI. A really good test of whether you're using advanced AI system is to ask it to give you 10 sentences that end with the word apple. Only the most advanced systems can do that because AIs don't see words the way we do. So Anything early than GPT-4 will mess that up completely. So it's my actual go-to test to figure out whether I'm using a GPT-4-based system, the most advanced system, or an older system. I, I also find, you know, show me something that delights me is a nice answer too. And you can see what it kind of comes up with creatively as a result. What would you be doing professionally if you weren't doing what you are today? As somebody who is, you know, a professor studying AI, I'm very happy with where I am. But I think entrepreneur is the obvious option. This is the golden time for you. You've got now have a staff of 10 people under you. What are you going to do with that, right? You just got 10 free employees. That feels like a moment. What would you recommend someone graduating from high school today to study? I think about that a lot. So the, the easy cynical answer is go to a regulated industry because those will take the longest time to adopt AI. Pharma, banks, hospitals, like that's the great way to go. But I, the other option is go into the storm. What's the area that you, that, you know, that you think is gonna be most affected by this? How do you become part of the new generation that uses this? But you know, I think that that's, that's the million dollar question that I think about all the time is like, what does industry look like? I think two years we're, under, we're, we're overestimating change, right? But five, 10 years, I think we're underestimating it. 
And what's one piece of advice you'd have for listeners of this podcast? Use this thing, right? You, I think the only way out is through. And I have a theory that the only way you know you've really started to get what this thing means is you have three sleepless nights. And the point is to get you to the three sleepless nights, the nights where you're like, oh my God, this is so exciting. This is so terrifying. What's it mean to be human? What does this mean? I don't understand. You know, you, if you don't get there and you're not like anxiously getting up in the middle of the night and trying a query and then going back to bed, like, oh my God, I can't believe it did that. Or why didn't it do that? I think you haven't had your moment. I don't know if, if you've had your three sleepless nights yet, but like, I think that that's what I would be urging you to do. Until you get there, you haven't really gotten this. Ethan Mollick, on behalf of our listeners, thank you for giving us sleepless nights. Thank you. Forward Thinking is a production of the McKinsey Global Institute. Find us online at mckinsey.com forward slash MGI or at McKinsey underscore MGI on Twitter. Forward Thinking is hosted by Michael Chewy and me, Janet Bush. Our audio engineer is Colin Warren. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate or review us wherever you get your podcasts. The opinions expressed by podcast guests are their own and do not reflect the views or opinions of the McKinsey Global Institute. References to specific products, services, or organizations do not constitute any endorsement or recommendation by MGI.